I encourage you to open your Bibles once again with me this morning to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 22. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, feel free to follow along in the insert in your bulletin or with a Bible on the back table. A couple visitors this morning. For those of you who are visiting, we've been working our way through this book of history. It's a history of the early Christian church after Jesus Christ left this earth. His spirit and his message carried by his followers still remained. And they've done more than just simply remain, but this message has begun to change the world. And so we have been looking at this change over the past while, let's just say. Would you believe that I counted? And this is my 40th sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, we started this series way back in the fall of 2013. And I assure you that the end is in sight. Uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. A few more months and uh, we will be done this book of the Bible and we will move on. I suspect that some of you might be getting weary of our walk through the book of Acts, but I will guarantee you this, you're not as weary as the Apostle Paul is today as we return to his story and his saga. Paul is getting bounced around the ancient world and specifically the ancient city of Jerusalem a bit like a pinball for weeks For weeks we have heard of Paul proclaiming and healing and fruitfulness in his ministry as he shares the good news, as he encourages these churches that he has planted in the ancient world. And now since he has returned to Jerusalem a couple weeks ago in our time frame of looking through this book, there has been nothing but trouble. He's been attacked by a mob of angry Jews. He has been arrested essentially rescued by the Roman authorities. He tried to defend himself only to incite another riot to narrowly escape being flogged. And now today, Acts chapter 22, verse 30 is where we begin. And today marks the second of five defenses that the Lord is going to require Paul to make of his ministry. It's important to note, it's not Paul that's on trial. It is the Gospel that's on trial. It is the message that he preaches that is really on trial. And so today, Paul is dragged before this ruling body of the Jews, this group of 70 men known as the Sanhedrin. The Romans who have him in chains at the moment, they are simply trying to find answers as to why this guy is such a lightning rod. Because he's been nothing but trouble, nothing but disorder since he walked in to Jerusalem. They tried to let him speak and that didn't work. And so this is just their latest attempt at getting to the bottom of what this guy is all about. And it's where we pick up our story today in Acts chapter 22, starting at verse 30. It's a great example of the fact that these chapter headings are not inspired by God. They were added later. And uh, I think chapter 23 probably better starts where we're starting today. But nonetheless, chapter 22, verse 30 is where we begin 
reading down through verse 24. Again, a lengthy passage. Bear with me as I read and listen closely. This is God's Word. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is the Roman commander, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers. I did not know that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, and they sharply contended, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And he called on two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea 
at the third hour of the night. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. We didn't sing that song today, but it's one of the great hymns of the faith that we often sing. I know it's a hymn that expresses the cry of my heart, and I suspect the cry of your own heart as well, in the fact that you feel weak. Do you feel weak? And particularly weak in sharing and proclaiming the gospel, broken and inadequate to share it well. I know I, know I do. As we come to this next chapter in the life of Paul, the Holy Spirit once again reminds us of some things that we need to hear again and again as God's people. Things that we have already looked into this book and likely we've already forgotten. As I look back on the last few weeks of opening up God's Word together and our shadowing of the Apostle Paul, I I noticed that a theme has emerged and it started back with observing and pointing you to imitate a life poured out. That was several weeks ago. And then we moved to a life, uh, speaking of Paul, a life that is willing to suffer for the Gospel, a, a life that accommodates for the weak. All good things that the Apostle Paul shows us as he imitates the life of Jesus. But frankly, if we're, if we're honest, Paul has been a bit of a super-Christian lately. And possibly you, as you have listened, have felt increasingly inadequate and weak to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. This morning, I think Luke reminds us that Paul was just like us at times. Of course, Paul would have acknowledged this. He acknowledges this over and over again. It's a good thing that Paul's like us. And so as we look at this episode of Paul's life, I want us to think and to do so around two promises that we see here. Two promises in the midst of this good history that's further filling in the picture for us of God's early work in His infant church. And the first promise is this. The Gospel goes forth in weakness. The Gospel goes forth in weakness. The key word there is the word Weakness. I mean, that's the place where most of us live. And this is the place where Paul found himself, I argue, in Jerusalem. 
Many of you know that I like the game of golf. I like to watch golf. I like to play golf. I like to try to play golf. I wish I was better at golf. There's a whole marketing campaign that the PGA, the Professional Golf Association, does where they show these great shots of these pro golfers and they have the tagline, these guys are good. I'm like, yeah, I know they're good. But every once in a while, I'll watch a golf tournament and there will be an absolute, what we call, a shank. Right, Chris? A shank. The ball just goes wildly left or wildly right. And as I watch that, it's incredibly encouraging to me. (laughs) Because golf is one of those games that's humbling that levels the playing field, so to speak, and it reminds me that these guys are good, yes, but they are just humans. I think Paul shows us a little bit of that this morning, and I find that encouraging. Our passage begins this morning with Paul still in the hands of the Romans. He's dragged before this special called meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, keep in mind that no formal charges have been filed against the Apostle. The Romans are still just trying to figure out who he is and why he is creating such a stir in their city. Paul, the former Pharisee himself, remember, used to be Saul, As he stands before this ruling council called the Sanhedrin, he may have very well actually known some of these men. He may have remembered them from his days of zealously serving the Lord as one of them. So Paul certainly knows how these guys tick. And he certainly knows why their blood boils right now as he stands before them. These are his brothers, not just in the sense that they're his Jewish kinsmen, like he has told the crowds prior. But they're his brothers in the fact that he was once as zealous for the things of God as they are zealous for the law and the things of God now. And so his defense in this account that Luke gives us, his defense begins as the last one did, with the words, my brothers, with this respect, my brothers, hear me out. And then a simple one-sentence declaration of a clean conscience. That's all he says. Now Paul is not saying here to the Sanhedrin that he is sinless, He is simply saying that before God, he has sought and has done what he thought he ought to do. He knew the truth. God had revealed his will to him. Specifically, God had called Paul to preach to the Gentiles. And as we talked about last week, Paul was maybe had in the back of his mind the fact that, guys, my brothers, this wasn't my idea. I have lived before my God, with a clean conscience. So Paul's not saying he's sinless. He's not being arrogant either. He's simply saying that he is confident that God has called him to this. He is unashamed about that. And so it really doesn't matter in some sense what they say. Bam! 
They hit him. Maybe it was just a word, a simple word spoken. Maybe it was a simple wave of the finger. Before it knows it, Paul is smacked in the mouth. You see, that kind of confidence before a ruling party, a ruling council, that didn't sit well. Hey, who's, who's an authority here? We will be the judge of that. Thank you very much. Luke tells us that Ananias ordered the strike to Paul's mouth. And we know from history that Ananias was a particularly disgraceful holder of the office of high priest. It was quite possible that Ananias just wanted to flex his muscles here and just put Paul in his place. Ananias was greedy. He was controlling He was corrupt. But what he ordered was illegal. It was illegal. Even in that kind of scenario, defendants had rights. And so what does Paul do? Well, perhaps with his hand still clutching his face, or maybe he composed himself for a moment. But he lashes out. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet according to the law, you order me to be struck. What Paul said was true in this lashing out to the council and to the high priest. History tells us that Ananias will be killed. He will be assassinated. When the Jewish war comes in A.D. 66, it's true that these men are whitewashed walls. These are words that we have heard before. They're similar to the words Jesus used in Matthew 23-27, where Jesus uses even stronger language to describe the actions of these guys, calling them whitewashed tombs. And Paul was saying, listen, you guys are crumbling walls that just have paint over you to look like you've got everything together, but you're a mess. And Jesus said, not only are you a mess, you're dead inside. There's nothing there. And so what Paul says is true, but the question is, is it appropriate? There's a time to confront There's a time to be quiet. And which is called for here? That's the big question. What about respect for authority? What about gentleness and meekness that the Lord calls His followers to? I mean, this certainly isn't the way Jesus replied when He stood before this council. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, When He, that is Jesus, was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, it seems to me that this account here is weakness. This is a duff. This is a shank by Paul. And he seems to confess as much. I I didn't know, brothers. I didn't know that it was the high priest. For it is written, he's quoting here Exodus 22, God's law, it is written there, you shall not speak evil of your people. Well, the question is, how could Paul not have known? 
Really, Paul? You didn't know? We do know Galatians 6.11 tells us, or seems to lead us to believe, that Paul had poor eyesight. He really did. He could not see well. And so it's possible that he just didn't recognize that Ananias had ordered this strike. It could be that because this was a special called meeting of the council and not a normal meeting of the council, that the high priest wasn't in his typical garb, wasn't in his typical robes that Paul would have recognized from afar. Either of these things could have caused the mistakes. And so Paul, in his weakness, acknowledges his error. And in turn, I think he reminds us and he encourages us that it's through broken vessels, through jars of clay, that we hold this treasure for those around us. That's how the gospel is handled and how the gospel goes forth, not in the hands of super-Christians, but in weakness. Now in teaching this passage, i got to give a little disclaimer here. Because not everyone agrees with me and most commentators that I looked at as I studied this passage. Church fathers such as Augustine and Calvin argue that Paul is actually justified in his conduct here before the high priest and that his response to them is actually sarcasm. That he's actually calling into question the legitimacy of Ananias' rule. Sure, the law demanded respect for authority, but maybe Paul was in a different category as an apostle of Jesus. I considered that, but I just don't see it. And what tipped me over the edge was the fact that Luke is writing this history in part to show that the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus, have integrity in the world. Over and over again throughout this book, we hear from earthly authorities that Christianity is no threat to the social order. It's a threat to the human heart, but not necessarily to Roman rule. After all, the Romans are the ones that are protecting Paul. They're his only hope right now. His one lifeline. And so it seems to me contrary for Luke to paint this intentional, to intentionally paint a picture of Paul stepping out of line, so to speak. It seems to me that he wants to present a Paul of weakness, of contrition, of humility. And more than that, the weakness doesn't stop there. He does something else he regrets. You see, the Sanhedrin of the day, they were made up of two different factions. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the liberal skeptics of the day. They didn't believe in resurrection. They doubted the supernatural. The Pharisees, Paul's former crowd, they were the conservatives. They were the traditionalists. You could actually embrace Jesus as a Pharisee and not give up fundamental tenets of your theological system. That wasn't the case with the Sadducees. And Paul knows that this division exists. He sees it here in these men before him. And so perhaps because he sees, oh, this is going to go nowhere. I just got popped in the mouth. He looks around. He sees what's happening. And he says, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I stand before you. The wheels come off. 
It's the same effect I say when I say to my dog, squirrel. Boom. Whatever she was doing, it doesn't matter. These men are now totally distracted. All the Pharisees are wanting to stand up to defend one of their own. And the Sadducees are defending their own positions. And Paul suddenly isn't the focal point anymore. The Inquisition is over. In the midst of the clamor, things get tense and he has to be rescued again by the Romans who must be rolling their eyes. Ah, we're not getting anywhere with this guy. Why did Paul do this? Why did Paul say such a thing to derail this whole process? We don't know. But this we know. He regretted it. If you look ahead to Acts 24 Verses 20 and 21. Just a couple chapters from now, he will say in his defense to Felix the governor, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. So one thing he regrets I don't know why. I have to ask him. But I do know this. The point is weakness, not strength. The point is mistakes, not necessarily successes. This is what God is using to proclaim His name. And isn't that good news? On top of the good news that we already have to proclaim that God uses people like you and me, screw-ups like you and me, to proclaim the Gospel. It reminds me of James when he writes about prayer in his book, James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us, with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. As Paul writes extensively to the church at Corinth, God delights to show himself strong in our weakness. And weakness is often the way, and Paul is showing us that that's the case, even with him. Let that encourage you this morning in the Gospel. But with the recognition of weakness, even when you know that God is showing himself strong through it, with the recognition of weakness comes inevitably, I think, discouragement. And it was no different for Paul. I mean, since Paul had landed in Jerusalem, he had gotten nowhere. Only sin had affected his ministry. One would assume that he would be incredibly discouraged. Those of you who were here, remember last fall in November, Paul was, Paul was in a similar place of discouragement. And, and I reminded you, God's Word reminded us of two things. When paralyzed by fear and discouragement, remember that Jesus is by your side. And number two, when you want to give up, remember that God will save His people. Well, Paul forgot that. Just like you forgot that. And just like you need to now be reminded by the Lord that God gives sufficient grace to the weak. 
And that's the second thing I want us to see again and be reminded in this passage, that God gives sufficient grace to the weak. We take the Lord's words to Paul that he shares to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12.9. We apply them to our own lives. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And grace comes to Paul. God's grace is communicated to Paul in two distinct ways here in this account. The first is in the reality of his presence. The presence of God. What does it say in verse 11? It's this amazing account. The Lord stood by Paul. And we don't know exactly what happened. I think that the Lord actually, the risen Christ, actually stood by Paul. That Paul actually looked upon him with physical eyes. It's not the first time that the Lord Jesus, the risen Jesus, met Paul. The Lord Jesus introduced himself to Paul in that way. The Lord comes to a discouraged Paul who sees no fruit in his ministry, who only sees the weakness of his own sin, And he comes and he stands by him. Now we're probably not going to see the risen Christ with our physical eyes in our discouragement. But what we do see is this. Through the eyes of faith, we see that very same presence. And through the Spirit of Christ that is with each of you, as you faithfully seek to do His work, the presence of Jesus is with you. He is near His people. And He gives grace. He promised it in Isaiah 43, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you. You are mine. When, I, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Hebrews 13, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Believe it and take courage. He is with his people. That's what the Lord says to him. He says the words, take courage. It's interesting that this word, only Jesus uses these words. Only Jesus uses this word that's translated courage. Four other times in the New Testament. It's a word that means confidence and and boldness and, and heart. Take heart. It's Jesus' unique encouragement to you. Just remember who I am. Remember where I am. And remember that greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Grace comes to us. Grace came to Paul through presence. But God gives sufficient grace also through the promise of a future. And that's where our passage ends this morning. The Lord says to Paul, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord, in a sense, validates Paul's ministry in Jerusalem. Right? Paul just sees sin and weakness and no fruit and The Lord Jesus says, listen, you have testified faithfully to me. And your story is not over. There's more work to be done. 
And the plot line that the author writes probably isn't the plot line that Paul wants to hear right now. But Paul has counted the cost. And for him it's worthy. For him it's worth. He is worthy to play the part. You see, the Lord validates, seemingly validates this promise of a future of testimony in Rome by this providential placement of Paul's nephew. It's the first time and the only time that we ever hear about Paul's family. We didn't know Paul had a sister. We didn't know he had a nephew. We'd never hear about him again. But Luke records and reminds us that there are no slaves to consequences, but God orders our circumstances. And the Lord uses this providential placement of Paul's nephew to foil this plot to murder Paul. And Luke seemingly underlines the compatibility of Roman law with Christianity as he describes the lengths that the Romans are going to to protect this one man. Forty guys have decided not to eat, and so they surround Paul with 470 Roman soldiers. They're not going to mess around. They will get him to Felix, which is where we'll go next week. But the point is, God isn't finished with this jar of clay yet. The plot goes on. Weakness, grace, the presence of the Lord, and a future. It's our story. We're not much different than Paul. May God use us to testify to the reality of who he is and what he's done. In weakness, the gospel goes forth. But God gives sufficient grace to the weak. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is sweet to our hearts this morning. Father, in those times of discouragement and despair, may we remember that you are with us. May we remember that you delight to show yourself strong through our weakness. And so may we stop beating ourselves up for what we haven't done or what we should have done, but seek to be faithful as best as we can to give testimony to the hope that lies within us. Father, for those who are here this morning struggling with their own faith, Lord, would you remind them through the sweetness of your gospel, through the sweetness of these words, of their need for you, and the joy and the peace that you hold out for them through Jesus, the one given for them, that they might have new life. We'll plant these words deep in our heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.